0: man. He's still thinking about it. We got just a few rascals at our Christian school there, First Academy, uh, but they certainly gave us a creative list of things to be thankful for this morning. You know, I'm really grateful how the Lord arranges our our calendar uh, to celebrate such a vital part of American history is such an important part of our spiritual life because gratitude is so essential to Christian growth. And, um, it's reminders of that, that the things we take for granted in life. I was listening or reading to a, a quote by Matthew Henry, the 18th century Welsh Bible commentator that was robbed one time, and he was asked about his experience. And he said, let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. And then he said, second, although they took my purse, which I, I'm going to substitute with wallet because that's what he meant. They took my wallet. They did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. (laughs) And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not someone else. It's powerful to think about even in a difficult time. He had a lot of things to be thankful for. Uh, Today, we will have a, a sermon called Thanksgiving Reminders. And next week, we'll finish our sermon series in the study of John 15 called "Breakthrough." But I'm, I'm today I'm looking forward to our study. We're going to look at different verses in Romans, looking at ver- Romans chapter 1. I asked my assistant a few weeks ago to go to a, a, a Bible application online and to print out every verse in the Bible on, on the subject of thanksgiving. And uh, it had the word thanks or grateful in there. And I, she printed out all these wonderful verses. And so I was having a feast just looking at all the different admonitions in Scripture about being grateful. And what struck me as I looked at all those verses was... Uh, different books, different epistles that had several different uh, encouragements toward gratitude. And one of them was Romans, and there are four different verses that deal with gratitude in Romans. But what I found interesting about them is they're truths that are somewhat unfamiliar to us. In other words, there aren't your normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill things that we often find on our gratitude lists. There are some reminders about the importance of thanksgiving. And this morning, as we look at the first one in Romans chapter one, verse 21, uh, number one on your outline this morning, the first Thanksgiving reminder is A, give thanks to ward off a spiritual downfall. Now, Paul is setting up a, basically, he's giving a defense of what a theological term is called general revelation. In other words, he's saying that God has revealed himself through creation uh, and nature in such a powerful way that we don't have an excuse not to reach out for God. And once you make a positive response for God, God reveals himself to you uh, through the person of Christ. But he describes uh, in verses 19 through 23, man's failure to proper, properly show recognition to the one true God. And then in verses 24 through 32, he talks about the pending moral downfall for those who refuse to acknowledge who God really is and what struck me is how thanksgiving or the lack of gratitude is a mark of people headed toward spiritual rebellion and so if we want to be people that are not heading toward a moral failure and a moral downfall we need to shore up and strengthen the and cultivate the practice and habit of gratitude in our lives look at Romans 121 it says this for although they knew God They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, oftentimes when Paul uses the term knew in the beginning of verse 21, although they knew God, he's referring to that intimate knowledge of God, a personal relationship with God, if you will. But in this instance, he's not referring to that. He's referring to information about God because he basically says in verse 20, God had given all, all the information they needed through revealing Himself in nature for them to have an initial positive response toward Him. And so, in other words, although they knew everything about who the one true God was, they, they didn't do two things. They didn't glorify Him as God, that would be living a life of worship, nor, what, gave thanks to Him. They didn't acknowledge that He was the source of their provision. They didn't acknowledge that every good thing in their life had come from His hand. Instead, they accredited it to themselves or to idols. And so the result was twofold. Two things happened when they refused to give thanksgiving to God. First of all, their thinking became futile. That means their ability to discern truth from error was impaired. They couldn't discern anymore what right was and what wrong was. And then their foolish hearts were darkened. At the center of their being, there was a dark moral digression that led to a free-for-all spiritually. The same is true in our lives when we refuse to give thanks to God and don't live a life overflowing with gratitude like we're commanded to do in Colossians 2-7, our ability to perceive and think morally with moral correctness becomes impaired. When we're not worshipers, we're not thanking God, we don't think straight about what is right and what is wrong, and our hearts are based on our own reasoning, and the, we begin to drink in the culture of the world rather than with God's ways. Matter of fact, uh, later on in verses 26 and 27, some of the results of, of what happens to a feudal thinking occurs. It says this, it says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, their men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Some of you are saying, you can't read that verse in our culture. That's certainly not acceptable or not allowed. Well, we've got to acknowledge that we don't base what is right and wrong based on what our culture says, based on what the evening news says, but this is Scripture is saying that the person who will not acknowledge who God is begins to have a fall in every area of their life, and one of the key markings of it it comes to their sexual behavior. See, God put loving parameters on uh, what we're allowed to experience sexually because he's so committed to what is best for our life. And so he says, save yourself until marriage and exclusively have relations between uh, one man, one woman, and committed marriage for life because he cares so much about what is best for us. But there was people that refused to acknowledge who God was and they began to have desires that were unnatural. They weren't what God had designed them to be. They began to follow the dictates of their conscience and heart. Now, some of you are saying, okay, that's not my struggle, so I guess I'm all right. Well, he, he, he continued the list in verse 29. See if you can be pinged on any of these. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. Should I keep going? They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil, and they disobey their parents. In other words, there's a long list of things that have contrary desires to what God wants for us. The problem is, is that oftentimes when we have a desire that's contrary to what's right, we make excuses for it. We can say, you know what, I'm born this way we have a all of us may be wired in a certain way with a a wrong desire but it doesn't mean we have a a we should cave into that desire. There might be a disposition someone has toward alcoholism, genetically, but we don't cave into that desire just because we might be disposed that way. Maybe someone is created and they don't feel comfortable in their own gender. It doesn't mean that God created you with different desires. There are desires that our environment and our culture stokes to make us think that we have to go a certain route. The same is true with the other list in verse 29, that we have a desire for anger, a desire for greed or for selfishness. We don't just say, you know what, it's okay if I have a temper. I'm part German or part Italian, and that's just how we are in our culture. We just blow up, everything's okay. No, when we have a desire that's contrary to God's will, we submit to God and go against the desires of our heart. Some are going, where's the sweet Thanksgiving sermon? (laughs) I don't have one today. Hopefully get one next year, okay? A sweeter (laughs) little sermon. But what I'm trying to point out is the connection that Paul made back in verse 21 And the behavior of a moral free-for-all society. It begins with acknowledging who God is. And I would also infer, based on this book of Romans, by submitting your life and committing your life to Jesus Christ. Entering into a relationship of faith in Him. But also acknowledging that He is God and then giving thanks. Because once you have acknowledged who God is and you live a life of gratitude, you are so longing then to be close to God that you don't want to cave in to your desires that are evil that will pull you away from God, whether they are struggling with sexual sin or just all of the desires of our heart listed in 29 and 30. And so don't forget that important connection of gratitude to off spiritual rebellion in your life and in our culture. Well, in chapter 6, verse 17, there's another reference to gratitude that I noted. And chapter 6 is an incredible reminder of who we have become. We used to be governed by sin. Just like Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, anyone who sins is a slave to that sin. But Paul tells us that we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He says in verse, in chapter 6, verse 14, that you are no longer under the law. Though the law of God shows us our sin, we realize we can't keep the law in our own inability. So he says, now you are under grace. You have changed kingdoms. There's been a, a, a complete life change because of who you are in Christ. And so uh, the second principle this morning is, is give thanks to God for redirecting our life. Maybe you're like me and you came to know Christ at an earlier age and though you didn't experience a radical life change per se, at a young age you are so thankful that God has redirected your life so that you don't have to experience what this world will offer instead. But some of you know what it's like to have lived a life following after the ways of this world, and if you've come to know Christ, you're no longer a slave governed by that sin where there is no way out. You're now a slave to God. Let's look at what Paul celebrated in 6.17. He says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. In other words, part of what we must do as believers is thank God for who we are not anymore because of his grace. There's a beautiful song that Brandon Heath, a Christian singer, sings called, I'm Not Who I Was, and it celebrates the life change that Christ has given us. You know, Paul's writing to a culture that definitely understood slavery. It's noted by historians that about one-third of the Roman culture in the first century were slaves. (laughs) There were so many slaves that slave owners got together to make sure that they didn't dress their slaves in common slave attire when they went into town because they didn't want the slaves to begin looking around and see how strong their number was. Also, it was possible that you could, in this culture, be, your freedom could be bought by someone else. And so there were many that had, were former slaves that were now members of the church. And so the church that he's writing this letter to and encouraging spiritual growth, they understood firsthand what slavery was. And as awful a system as that certainly was, it really gives a beautiful image of what life is like outside of Christ. We're in bondage, and there is no way out. Some of you who came to know Christ later in life know that you may have tried with a muster a bunch of willpower to have life change, but there was no way out until someone came and bought your freedom. Jesus Christ was the perfect sinless son of God and the purchase for the payment for your sin problem. And now the penalty for sin has been paid and the power, the domination of sin has been broken and we are as free as we believe ourselves to be in Christ from that reign, from that yoke of slavery. I fear that we don't often thank God for who we are in Christ and who we are not anymore. I was speaking not long ago, with a gentleman that had graduated from our men's care center and had found freedom in Christ and had come to uh, be free from alcohol and walking with the Lord. He came and asked for prayer because while he'd struggled with alcoholism for some 30 years, he'd also been married all during that time. And it had taken a toll in his marriage. And uh, though he's uh, God has completely changed his life, there's a joy and a peace in him. He's asking prayer for the healing of his marriage and I was very impressed with something he said to me he said I just want prayer pastor he said, he said this though I'm not concerned whether or not God has the power or the ability to do this because I know that he can because I have seen the amazing change he's done in my life I'm convinced that God has the power to redirect and change my wife's heart and life as well. And it was because of that conviction he had tasted what it's like to not know God, to be a slave of sin. And he'd seen such a powerful life change in his life. He was filled with gratitude for, but also he was filled with faith that God could change the life of another. When is the last time you thanked God that you're no longer governed by your sinful nature, that in Christ you've become a slave to righteousness? Well, Paul also is quite filled with candor and openness to us because he never gives the impression that once you walk down that aisle, so to speak, once you pray and invite Christ in your life, you can live start that moment living a problem-free life. No, he opens up to us in verses 14 through 25 of Romans 7 to describe some of the struggle and the tension in the Christian life. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I have the law of God in my heart, but... As soon as I begin making progress within me, this strong, powerful desire, there is a continual battle. We appreciate his honesty because we feel some of that same tension. In our journey toward spiritual maturity, there are many bumps along the way. And Paul describes a tone in verse 24 that could sound somewhat like despair, but maybe it's more like a a sense of utter helplessness, placing his hope in, his, in, the, in the right object. But verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? In other words, this body of death was a reference to the sin that he so constantly struggles with. By the way, I, I, I might encourage you with this analogy that I read one time. It's, it's a legend to illustrate a point. There was a man walking through the woods and uh, he saw a huge barn and he walked inside the barn and it was filled with seeds and he asked whose barn this was and some of the helpers said this barn belongs to satan and all of the seeds you see are seeds that he sows into human hearts he looked at seeds of lust and seeds of pride and seeds of greed but he, he saw a huge pile of seeds of a, another kind and he, and the man asked some of satan's helpers what are these seeds he said oh well that's the largest amount those are seeds of discouragement and he said why are there more of those he said because they can bloom and grow almost anywhere and the man said anywhere he said yes there's only one place we have found that we can't seem to grow seeds of discouragement he said and that is in the heart of a grateful man or woman it's true that when we get discouraged, it pushes gratitude out of the way. We begin to focus on our mountain instead of the mountain mover. We begin to focus on our problems instead of the person of God, and discouragement comes in and sets an awful tone and, and, and trajectory of our life. But, and so Paul may have sounded discouraged, But the Lord, who is the lifter of our heads, lifted up his head and gave us hope in verse 25 when he belts out gratitude and simply says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He answers his own question. Who's going to save me from this discouragement? Who's going to save me amidst this tension? He says, thank you, God. Thanks be to God because it is squarely and only in Jesus Christ. My helplessness pushes me toward freedom in Christ. You see, it's not enough to have a right diagnosis. It's not enough for us to admit, yep, I'm a sinner, I struggle with sin. It's not enough enough for us to realize that we have a problem. We've got to realize the source and only help in our our journey is Christ himself. And so a third principle is we must give thanks for freedom in Christ. And so as he's asking who'll save me from this wretchedness, he doesn't talk himself out. He doesn't try to say, you know, I'm really not wretched anymore. He acknowledges that he is wretched, but there is one that gives him the liberty that he needs, and that's only Jesus Christ. I would also acknowledge that he's probably talking about thanking God for current freedom that we can have. Jesus told us, then you will know the truth. This is John 8, 32. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're free in this life when we walk in truth. When we believe the truth about who God is, believe who we are in him, we are free as we believe ourselves to be an appropriate truth in our life. There's freedom. But he also seems to be celebrating maybe what, might, what could be an ultimate triumphant sense of freedom. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of 1 Corinthians 15 in his mind when he one day celebrates that we will be delivered from this body of death. And maybe in Revelation 21 where there's going to be no more crying or tears or pain. There's a hope that we have in the future that while we're experiencing growth and freedom in Christ right now, There's ultimate liberty awaiting for us in Christ when the struggle with sin will be eternally over and we'll be clothed in the righteousness of God and we'll be praising his name forever. We have so much to be grateful for. And in the midst of our struggle with this body of death that we're walking around in, there's hope for freedom right now through Jesus Christ alone and there's a triumphant note for the future that we're ultimately liberated by him. Now there's one more gratitude reminder in the book of romans and it's somewhat of a complicated ecclesiastical church situation it's in romans chapter 14 paul begins that chapter by encouraging them to accept him whose faith is weak and not to pass judgment on disputable matters there was judges and critics in the early roman church There was a tension of clashing cultures of Romans, Greeks, and Jews heard the same gospel, made the same response. Now all of a sudden they've been political enemies all these years and they're worshiping the one true God together. Well, they had different customs. And they all kind of brought their customs with them and they insisted that their customs were right. It happens to us and our church cultures as well. And verse 4, he said, to his own master he stands or falls other words look you're not accountable in an ultimate sense to one another you're going to entrust your brother to stand or fall before the living god don't have to morally police his every action and then in verse six he brings to the table the role of gratitude in preserving church unity so that's the principle number four. Give thanks to preserve relational unity. Have you ever thought about that? That if you are a grateful person and you're in a congregation where you're not focusing on minor issues that can be disputed, you're, you're not, obviously, we, we make no concessions wherein the Bible has clearly spoken. But when you're dealing with, in, in verse 1, a disputable matter, A heart of worship and thanksgiving will bring relational glue and unity to a congregation. Look what this verse says in verse 6. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So both Jews and Greeks had different perspectives, but Paul's saying if you are doing this in order to please God, with a heart of overflowing gratitude, you can be one, though you might have different perspectives. We can imagine the tension between the churches. Hey, let's celebrate the Sabbath like we've always done in our old covenant. And the Greeks are going, no way. Our Lord rose on the first day of the week. Let's celebrate it on Sunday. Okay, well, what about the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Purim? We've got to celebrate those. Then the Greeks are going, why do we celebrate those? Those are part of your culture. We don't, we're not bound to do those. And so they had day clashes. And then they had food fights because there was a real strict Hebrew diet. And then the Greeks could eat whatever they wanted under the sun. And it was a spiritual issue, the prohibitions. As a matter of fact, the Greeks, even the Greek Christians, they, they, were, they would be a meat sacrifice to idols, and then it would go on for sale in the marketplace. I think I would have been a pretty good Greek Christian because I, if, if I were in the marketplace and I see of my Jewish brothers and I see a big honking piece of pork, I'm purchasing it and my Jewish church member comes to me and says, hey, why are you purchasing that meat sacrificed to idols? You're not going to eat that, are you? And I'd look at him and say, no way I'm not going to eat this yet because it's not grilled <laughs> and I hadn't got barbecue sauce and it's not seasoned. But when I do, you can come over and have a big old bite because we're free in Christ, and that's what they were doing. Now, it is true that Paul asks for concern for your brother, that if you're having a church party, the Greeks don't need to force pulled pork sandwiches on the Hebrew Christians. You don't need to act like they're unholy, because they're unwilling to have your pork chops, and you don't need to act, the Hebrew Christians don't need to condemn and look down on them because they're eating this unholy defiled meat. Paul gave a principle in First, uh, in first Timothy 4.4 4, that everything is consecrated by thanksgiving. In other words, you, if you can't thank God for a handful of narcotics in one hand and a fifth of whiskey in the other. Because those are things that are mind-altering, illegal in some senses, and they can lead toward drunkenness. So if it's something that you can't, you can't thank God for this illicit affair that you're about to enter into. But if you can thank God for his goodness, and you're free in this matter of conscience, it's not prohibited in Scripture, then you're free to do it and be grateful for it. But one of the things that Thanksgiving will do is it pushes away from two attitudes that can show up to bring relational disunity. First of all, a grateful person avoids a, under number four, a critical spirit. You can imagine the criticizing going back and forth. Oh well you here's the thing. Sometimes when we have a conviction of something that we think is the best, we make the wrong conclusion of assuming that it is therefore best for everyone. There's simply different convictions we can have. If you want to get a real fight started among young Christian families today, talk about schooling options. No, we should be homeschooling because uh, this is better. We should be in Christian schools. So no, we should be in public schools so we can be alive. All have great points and all are not told us in Scripture what to do. It's a matter of conscience that we must accept other people's convictions and move on and not make it an issue of I'm holier than thou or, or this, that, and the other. We can, We must learn to avoid a critical spirit on issues that are disputable. And so they would be criticizing each other for not worshiping on days and eating of meats. And we can easily develop that kind of demeanor and attitude in our life, and gratitude pushes it away. When you thank God for what He has given you, you're not, you don't have the energy to put your nose down at other people of, of how they are doing and what their convictions are because you're so focused that God was so merciful to give you this piece of meat. Something else that gratitude will do is B under number four, is that a grateful person avoids envy. You can imagine those Hebrews would look over at that nice piece of pork or that pepperoni pizza, and they're looking over at, at their kosher meal, and they're going, man, that looks good. I remember we had some Muslim students in our college ministry several years ago when Susan and I first got married, and I asked these boys from the Uzbekistan, I said, what's your favorite thing about America? And they said, Pepperoni pizza. I bet, I bet it was. They didn't realize there's a reason they'd never had it in their homeland. So what happens is that envy is spurred on by a lack of gratitude. I had a young man came to me several years ago and said, he goes, I know this is silly, Pastor, but I'm struggling with envy. I see this guy's house or this guy's car or this guy's paycheck or whatever, and I just don't have this and I don't have that. He goes, what can I do to, to battle this? And I said, I just gave him one word, I said gratitude. I said, just go crazy thanking God for everything in your life and see what happens. He came to me smiling a couple of weeks later and said, you know what? That was the ticket. <laughs> I was so focused on what I didn't have and what others had that I had forgotten the abundant goodness that God had given to me. And so a, a grateful person pushes away a critical spirit, pushes away envy, and it strengthens relational unity. So this morning, maybe you've never thought about gratitude in this way in, in some of these instances, but my, my prayer is that God would, would propel us on to new heights this week by looking at these verses and reminding us of things and demeanors we should be grateful for and what a tool in the belt of spiritual growth gratitude actually is. This morning, we're going to enter into a time of response, and maybe as we're responding to God, God would be doing a work in your life of thanksgiving. Also, it may be true that if we, as we have described the Christian life, that you now see that you are somewhat of a slave to sin, that you've never personally placed your faith in Christ alone and entered into that freedom and you're ready. You're ready for Christ to come and open up your life and to redirect your course and you're tired of being governed by your sinful nature and you're ready to embrace God's gift of eternal life and receive his freedom. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you right now as we enter into a time of prayer. As we bow before him today living Lord we can't thank you enough of who will rescue us from this body of death it's the grace of God through Jesus Christ and we'd like to pray that you would draw people to your truth right now as we enter into a time of response heavenly father you have been so good to us and help us help our gratitude to match your abundant goodness in Jesus mighty name we pray amen